Our text this morning is Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, who is adequate to rightly handle your word of truth? We thank you that ultimately it is your Holy Spirit that teaches us. So we pray, Father, that you would teach us this morning from your word. Help us to make much of Jesus. I pray that he be preeminent in our lives, in our conversation, in our church, in everything that we do. Stir our affections for Jesus this morning. Help us to honor him with our lives, to glorify him in all that we do. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we talked last time about how the trouble at Colossae is the same trouble that we see today. The trouble is syncretism. The mixing of different religions and philosophies with Christianity. In his book, The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ, Ray Ortland explains that the culture in which we live propagates many false gospels. One of the destructive lies that informs our culture today is what Ray refers to as moralistic therapeutic deism. Here's its message in five easy statements. Number one, God exists and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Number three, the central goal in life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life unless except when he is needed to solve a problem. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Between the lies, you can almost hear the serpent say, you shall not surely die. Missing is the holiness of God. Absent is the monstrosity of our sin. Ignored is the separation between God and man. Pushed aside is the love which allowed Christ to take on the consequences of our sin. Shouted down is the glory of God in the gospel. Even among Christians, it's easy for ideas from our culture to creep into our thinking, to let our guard down, to compromise. Some of you know that coming over to our house is pretty much synonymous with being invited to enjoy a cup of tea. It's our thing. So um, imagine for a minute that you're at the house and further imagine that in addition to the tea, I have some hot brownies coming out of the oven that I made myself. So I ask you, you know, would you, would you like a brownie? Sure, you say, what's in them? 
Well, they have cocoa powder, sugar, butter, dog do, eggs, and water. Wait a minute, you say. Did you just say dog do? Oh, yeah, but it's just a little bit, and it's cooked, so it's clean. Uh, I'll pass on the brownies, thank you very much, you say. Yet how many times, when it comes to compromising with our culture, do we think, well, it's just a little. It won't hurt this one time, and before we know it, we're eating dog do brownies. The heresy at Colossae was mixing Christianity with the worldview of the culture around them. It was denying the, cult, the gospel, saying that Christ is not enough. The heresy seems to have included three elements. Number one was legalism, seeking righteousness and dietary restrictions and observing the Jewish calendar. Number two, mysticism, seeking righteousness in certain religious experiences. And number three, asceticism, trying to gain righteousness through self-denial. So we saw last time in verses 16 to 19 how Paul says not to be intimidated by legalists or to just be disqualified by mystics. Today in part two, we'll see how he deals with asceticism and self-made religion. So in, when we were in part one, we talked about how this particular heresy at Colossae had some things in common with Gnosticism. Gnostics say that matter is evil and that emancipation comes through gnosis, which is knowledge. According to dictionary.com, asceticism is the doctrine that a person can attain a high spiritual and moral state by practicing self-denial. So it follows, if evil is matter, or if matter is evil, and the body is matter, so it's evil, and then harsh treatment of the body would be good, right? At the end of the day, asceticism, like legalism, is trying to earn righteousness by what I do. It's adding to the gospel. It's saying Christ isn't sufficient. So Paul begins our passage today the way he begins really pretty much everything in first grounding us in the reality of the gospel before telling us how to live the Christian life. He does this succinctly by reminding us that we have died in three ways. In verse 20, we see that we have died, first of all, A, with Christ. Verse 20 starts out, is our union with Christ. We, have re- we are to receive him and walk in him, it says in chapter 2, verse 6. We are to be rooted and built up in him, verse 7. We are filled in him, verse 10. We just read, we died with him, verse 20. We were buried with him, verse 12. When Christ was raised from the dead, we were raised with him, chapter 3, verse 1. And when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory, verse 4. So as we saw in verse 20, we died with Christ. Our union with Christ means that when Christ died, we died. There's an ironclad connection between us. The book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians are somewhat sister books. They deal with a lot of the same um, issues and um, were written around the same time. In his book on Ephesians, called Sit, Walk, Stand, a Chinese pastor who was also martyred, Watchman Nee, explains that the first part of Ephesians is doctrinal, showing how we sit in Christ positionally. The middle and last parts of Ephesians 
are practical, telling us how to walk in the Christian life and how to stand against the enemy. The order of sit, walk, stand is important. He says most Christians make the mistake of trying to walk in order to be able to sit. But that's a reversal of the true order. Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. So when Paul reminds the Colossians that they have died with Christ, he is reminding us that God establishes a union between the believer and Christ in a way that makes it fitting for him to count Christ's death as our death. In Romans 6, 3-6, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Notice what it says. Our old self was crucified with him. This is past tense. It's already happened. Watchman Nee explains, if I put a dollar bill between the pages of a magazine and then burn the magazine, where's the dollar bill? It's gone the same way as the magazine, to ashes. Where the one goes, the other goes too. Their history has become one. But just as effectively, God has put us in Christ. What happened to him happened to us also. All of the experiences he met, we too met in him. Our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, so we should no longer be in bondage to sin. That is not an exhortation to struggle. It is history. Our history, written in Christ before we were born, Our deliverance from sin is not based on what we can do or even on what God is going to do for us, but on what he has already done for us in Christ. Paul reminds us of our... Why is that important? By reminding us that we have died in Christ, Paul is not just explaining that the penalty for sin has been paid, but the power of sin over us has been broken. Continuing in Romans 6, verses 6 to 8, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Why? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So Paul's simple words, if with Christ you died, brings a world of meaning to the Colossian believers, reminding them and us of our union with Christ. So let's continue on. Uh, The second way uh, Paul reminds us of the gospel, uh, and the second way he says that we have died, uh, is point B. We have died to the elemental spirits of the world. What are the elemental spirits of the world? The Greek word translated elemental spirits is stoichion. Stoichion is 
sometimes translated basic principles. Some of your versions of the Bible may actually translate it that way. The ESV translates it, elemental spirits, explaining Paul is likely using it here to refer to demonic spirits. It's the equivalent of rulers and authorities that we saw in verses 10 and 15. Stoichion is also used in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the stoichion, the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This continues the theme that we saw back in chapter 1 when Paul says in verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's like two countries that are separated by a road. Everyone is in one country or the other. One country is ruled by Satan, the other by Christ. One is the domain of darkness that is under the tyranny of sin. The other is a domain of darkness of the kingdom of light where we are dominated by grace. Now, we don't straddle the two kingdoms. Every person in the world is either under law or under grace. At salvation, God removes us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, that doesn't mean that we never sin. When we move from the old domain uh, to the new, we still have some of the characteristics of the old country. We can still hear Satan yelling at us from across the road. And we sometimes act like we are still his slaves. But we're no longer bound by the tyranny of sin. We're under new jurisdiction. The laws of the old country can't touch us. We're no longer in the kingdom of darkness, which means we're no longer blind to the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper explains, The glory of God is the beautiful brightness of God. There is no greater brightness. Nothing in the universe nor in the imagination of man or angel is brighter than the brightness of God. This makes the blindness of 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 shocking in its effect. Calvin says it with the kind of amazement it deserves. They do not see the midday sun. Those who are in the kingdom of darkness can't see the light because they're blinded by Satan. But for us as believers, there's been a fundamental change in citizenship. The more we understand that fact, the more that we can act in practice as citizens of the new kingdom. When we fall, it doesn't mean that we've gone back to the old country or that we are now under its power or jurisdiction again. It means that we have acted like we're slaves to sin, but we're not. 2 Corinthians 2.11 talks about how we do not want to be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So what are his designs? John 8.44 says, There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Remember that? Not true. It was a lie that was told in the garden that brought about the fall of man. It was a lie that was told that brought about 
toil and pain and death. It was a lie that brought about every evil in this world. Don't listen as Satan yells commands at us from across the road. Don't listen to his lies. We are no longer under his power. Friends, we need to really be reminded over and over again of the gospel before attempting to live the Christian life. So Paul reminds us of the gospel by telling us that we have died in three ways. First, we have died with Christ. In our union with Christ, not only was the penalty of sin paid, but the power of sin over us was broken. Second, we have died to the elemental spirits of the world. At salvation, God transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're under new jurisdiction. We have a new citizenship. Paul now tells us the third way we have died. He continues in verse 20. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So point C, we have died to the world. The Greek word translated world here is probably familiar to you. It's cosmos. One Bible commentator explains, cosmos here refers not to the physical earth or universe, but to the spiritual reality of the man-centered, Satan-directed system of this present evil age, which is alienated from and hostile toward God and God's people. In the high priestly prayer for his disciples, Jesus prayed in John 17, 16, and 17, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. So, we're like a submarine, right? A submarine operates in the water, but you don't want water in the boat. That would be a disaster. In the same way, we're in the world, but we don't want the world in us. Do not be conformed to this world, Paul tells us in Romans 12:2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So before exhorting us to live the Christian life, Paul begins where he always begins, with the gospel. He vividly reminds us that we have died in three ways. First, we have died in Christ. Second, we have died to the elemental spirits of the world. We're no longer in the domain of darkness, under the tyranny of sin. Third, we have died to the world. We are in the world, but not of it. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. Okay, now let's move from our position in Christ to living the Christian life. Point two, do not submit to regulations. The Greek word for regulation is dogmatizo, where we get the words dogma and dogmatic. Paul asks in verses 20 and 21, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to dogmatizo, to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul is saying, if you have died with Christ, and you have the Greek construction here, these rules reflect a cultural view that is contrary, direct opposite of Christianity. Asceticism says the body is evil, to be treated harshly. But 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit to be cared for. Scripture sees the body as good, to be used for the glory of God. 
Asceticism is all about submitting my body to my will, using my willpower. But Philippians 1.6 says that it is God who began a good work in us and will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Asceticism labels all material possessions as evil. But 1 Timothy 6.17 says God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. We are to hold loosely to material possessions and use them for the glory of God. Asceticism forbids marriage and requires abstinence from certain kinds of food. But 1 Timothy 4.3 says that God created these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The heresy at Colossae said, if you really wanted to be fulfilled enough, you need Christ plus other things. That Christ isn't enough. Today we think that Christ is a part of our lives. And maybe he's an important part, but is he all? We need Christ plus success. We need Christ plus good works. We need Christ plus a comfortable life. Christ plus keeping the rules. Christ plus some miraculous experience or Christ plus self-denial. Paul says we don't let anything distract you from the simplicity of salvation in Christ alone who is sufficient. Don't add anything to the gospel. He then gives us four reasons why we should not submit to these regulations. Point A, they're temporal. Verses 21 and 22 say, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. Notice that all three of these do nots are in quotes. So Paul seems to be quoting the slogans of these false teachers. Like legalism, asceticism is trying to earn righteousness by following certain temporal, external rules. Some of us grew up with church traditions of doing penance. Penance in the Roman Catholic Church is a sacrament. According to the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, it is essentially an act of devotion, a work by a person designed to obtain forgiveness of sin. According to the Catechism, and I'm quoting from paragraph 980, Penance has rightly been called by the Holy Fathers a laborious kind of baptism. The sacrament of penance is necessary for salvation for those who have fallen after baptism, just as baptism is necessary for salvation for those who have not yet been reborn. Scripture, however, does not teach that performing works or punishing oneself will make restitution for sin. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Some of you know that I grew up as a missionary kid in Costa Rica, Chile, and Ecuador. My time in Chile was lived under the shadow of the government of Salvador Allende. Allende was elected to the presidency with 36% of the vote in a three-way election. He ran on a socialist platform, but soon showed that his, you know, his true colors, which he was an ardent communist, he began to nationalize industry. He appointed political cronies to run businesses that had no knowledge of how to do so. Soon the economy was in ruins. The country was paralyzed by fear and strikes. One of the laws that affected me as a schoolboy 
was that all students had to wear the same uniform. So whether you were in private school or one of the few public schools, everyone had to wear the same thing. I had to wear gray slacks, a white shirt, and a navy blue sweater or jacket. For girls, it was the same, only they could wear either a navy gray skirt or a a navy jumper. The idea is that you then wouldn't be able to tell the difference between rich and poor kids. It, uh, It was a joke, of course. The poor kids had poor quality uniforms that never looked the same. If anything, it accentuated the differences. Focusing on regulations that are temporal and external is like trying to eradicate poverty by making all the kids wear the same colors. Paul is saying to the Colossians, don't submit to these regulations as if they had any spiritual value. They're all temporal and external, trying to change us from the outside in. But God changes us from the inside out. Everything of eternal value is in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Piper says of this verse, The pathway to Christ-likeness is beholding the glory of the Lord. Beholding is becoming. We are transformed into the image of the Lord by means of fixing our attention on His glory. So it is with sanctification. We're transformed into Christ's image, that's what sanctification is, by steadfast seeing and savoring the glory of Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit in changing us is not to work directly on our bad habits, but to make us admire Jesus Christ so much that our sinful habits feel foreign and distasteful. The Colossians were told not to handle, not to taste, not to touch certain things, like food, for example, in order to be more spiritual. But Paul says these are just temporal things. There's no eternal value here. 1 Corinthians 8.8 says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. So eating or not eating certain things does not make you any more or less spiritual. Now, someone at this point may say, what about fasting? As New Testament believers, we're not commanded to fast, but there are several narrative examples of fasting in the book of Acts. There are different opinions regarding the normalcy of fasting for a Christian. But biblical believers are united and understand in, in our understanding that prayer and fasting do not earn us righteousness with God. We pray and fast because we love God and we want to spend time with Him without distraction, not because it makes us righteous. It comes down to your motivation for fasting. That's internal. Only God can see the heart. We must be careful not to make rules for others that go beyond the clear teaching of Scripture. That brings us to point B. Paul says, don't submit to these regulations. Why? Because they're man-made. Verse 22, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. So not only are the prohibited commodities perishable, but the rules that are 
based on not touching or or, uh, tasting or holding these things, are based on human dogma. So some of you remember I grew up attending Southern Baptist churches that were pretty good about teaching salvation. But sanctification and discipleship, not so much. And it's maybe because of that that there were also certain rules that were really hammered home as big taboos. Some of those rules actually went beyond the clear teaching of Scripture. They were church. They removed abstinence of alcohol from their church covenant. Previously, prospective members were excluded from the fellowship if they were not teetotalers. During that time, he preached on this very passage that we're looking at today, saying, A church which erects regulations about food and drink as a means of judging or disqualifying does not yet know what it means to die with Christ and be freed from the powers of the world. Wherever authentic, joyful confidence in Christ diminishes, regulations are brought in to preserve what the power of Christ once created. Man-made rules do not add anything to our spirituality. The minute I have added anything to Christ, we have added something created to the Creator, something temporal to the eternal. So next, Paul says, do not submit to these regulations. We're in point C, as they're not wise. Verse 23 starts out, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. We used to take short-term mission trips to Guatemala. There's a town northwest of Guatemala carry heavy San Andres. On Good Friday every year, groups of men carry heavy wooden crosses up a hill on their shoulders. The cross beams are full of thorns, big ones, and they walk up this, this hill with the thorns digging into their backs. Another group crawls up the hill on their knees. They arrive at the top hours later, bruised and bloodied. It's a ritual carried out every year as penance and to show how devout they are. Such severity and asceticism and severe treatment of the body may appear to be spiritual to some, but it really promotes nothing more than confidence in self rather than in Christ. Paul is eager for the Colossians not to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, as we saw in verse 8. He wants to instill in our hearts the perils of legalism, of mysticism and asceticism, and really any other type of synchronistic uh, philosophy that we see within our culture that is contrary to Christianity. On the surface, these, uh, pra- these practices can appear to be so very noble and maybe worthy of our consideration. Those that are promoting it appear to be highly enlightened and Oh, these guys are personally fulfilled. David Garland writes, We also live in an era in which many are looking for personal fulfillment. People reject the fullness offered in Christ and search for other ways to fill themselves. Selfism is usually the result. Selfism takes the idea that we were created in God's image too far and ignores the idea that we have been corrupted by our sins and are culpable for them. It makes the self God 
and makes life's ultimate purpose in reaching the self's fullest potential and satisfying its utmost desires. Those who fill themselves only with themselves, however, remain empty. So Paul tells the Colossians not to submit to the regulations of these false teachers. The regulations are temporal and external. They have no eternal value. They're man-made. They're not from God. They may have an appearance of wisdom, but they're not. Finally, point D, they're useless. Verse 23, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We read earlier from Romans chapter 6, it's where Paul explains that our old self was crucified with Christ so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. In chapter 7, Paul describes the Christian's relationship to the law. He starts by explaining what all of us understand, that the law of any country only has authority over someone while they're alive. The minute they die, they don't care anything about the law. Death brings freedom from the law. He also illustrates this with marriage. In a marriage, spouses are bound to each other until a death occurs. Paul then says in Romans 7, 4, Likewise, my brothers, Paul's talking to Christians, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul then describes how he wasn't aware of the real nature of sin until the law made it clear to him. He uses as an example uh, that he didn't understand covetousness until uh, that it was a sin, that he shouldn't do this until the law actually told him so. He also explains that the law did not only keep him from sin, but aroused sinful passions in him. The law didn't make it better, it made it worse. Romans 7, 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What happens if you tell people they can't do something? They immediately want to do it. It puts the idea in their mind. It isn't the law's fault. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It, it's merely showing us our sin. Friends, if God's law doesn't restrain sin, but actually has the opposite effect, how could self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body ever have any value in stopping indulgence of the flesh? You can't train the sinful nature to be good. It has to be killed. You have to be given a new nature. And Christ alone can do that. That's why Paul begins the whole discussion with the gospel. I close with three practical applications. Number one, beware of syncretism with our culture. Watch out for interpreting the truth of Scripture by our culture instead of looking at our culture through the lens of Scripture. If you think, well, I'll just go along with my culture for a little bit, it won't hurt this one time. Before you know it, you're going to be eating dog do brownies. Number two, examine your motives. Understand that what makes something a spiritual discipline instead of self-made religion 
is the motivation behind it. We practice spiritual discipline of being in the Word because we love God and we want to know more about Him. We pray and some of us may practice fasting because we want to spend time with Him without distraction, not because asceticism makes us righteous. Our motivation is loving God and enjoying Him, not because it makes us spiritual. Number three, Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Before attempting to live the Christian life, remember that it was your old self that was crucified with Christ. It's it's been put to death. You have been given a new nature. Our relationship with him is totally new. We have become a new creation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we are new, a new creation in Christ. We thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that you have redeemed us, that you have broken the power of sin in our lives. Father, I pray that you would help us to live as believers, uh, knowing that uh, sin no longer has domain over us. Father, help us to uh, uh, no longer live in sin but to live by the power of your spirit. Thank you, Father, for your word. In Jesus' name.